0: Welcome to Crisis to Come Back, your Western Colorado climate action podcast. Each episode addresses climate change in Western Colorado with a focus on Delta County. This season of Crisis to Come Back, you'll hear interviews and conversations from local voices in our community, government, renowned scientists, and experts in our Western climate. This podcast was made possible in part by the West Elk Community Fund and Citizens for a Healthy Community. I'm your host, Corey Stanton, and this episode features Colorado's Commissioner of Agriculture, Kate Greenberg. I've had the opportunity to speak with Kate several times in the last few years, and it's always great to catch up with her and to hear about what's going on at the Colorado Department of Agriculture, which we sometimes refer to as the CDA. Just before the holidays, December 2023, Kate and I spoke about food security and the impacts of climate change in Colorado. In the previous episode, I spoke with Dr. Heidi Stetzler, who's out of Durango, who contributed to the fifth National Climate Assessment regarding the impacts of climate change on Southwest Colorado, and in particular the Western Slope and the North Fork Valley. We talked about the resiliency of farmers in their quest to innovate, but we did not discuss the economics of small-scale agriculture. The Colorado Department of Agriculture has, as part of its mission, to support small-scale farming and those farmers. Many small-scale farmers don't have the time or ability to do grant writing, create the record-keeping and awarded grant requires, and can't easily fit themselves into the payroll, workers' comp, food safety, and other systems that are required due to cost and complexity. So my first question for Kate Greenberg was, how do you address this and design programs that reach farmers who don't have the resources needed to access the help the CDA provides?
1: Yeah, great question. So I think for starters, you know, at the Colorado Department of Ag, we serve all scales of agriculture and we work with, you know, there's over 39,000 farms and ranches in the state. And we touch most, if not all of them, one way or another. That said, we have been for the last many decades in sort of a U.S. ag policy model of get big or get out. And that needs to change. And so while we continue to support all scales of agriculture, we know that the small and mid-size production and producers have not had the same opportunity to access programs or support necessarily over these decades. So um, some examples of how we're designing our many new programs that are we're building to serve agriculture, especially for these underserved communities, and maybe with that focus on small and mid-scale. For one, you mentioned resources to actually access more resources, right? It takes money to make money. And that's true for all of the dollars flowing from the state, but also from the federal government right now. One example of how we've done this, we have about a little over $7 million for a new program called the Community Food Access Program. It's a grant program that allows small retailers and small farmers to access funds that can help them increase their business. So if you're a small retailer, you say, I can only do shelf stable, but I want to do fresh local produce in my store. This grant can help that small business set up for selling fresh produce, buying cold storage, doing food safety handling training. Same with farmers, right? So they if they want to sell more local to these retailers, they have that option through this program. Because it's federal money, the initial contract for those small businesses and small is defined in statute for the small businesses to access the program was about 60 pages long. So my team, we asked ourselves, how can the Colorado Department of Agriculture absorb as much of that administrative burden while keeping rigorous sideboards on how the program operates? So we've actually turned that 60 page contract into a three page contract. So not the most glamorous, but super critical to that access question of how do you actually get your foot in the door and make the time you're spending on applying for funds and resources worth it for what you might get back.
0: That's incredible. Thank you to you and your team for consolidating 60 pages into three. I can't even imagine with legal jargon and all of that, the difficulties that came with that. So good job. How does the Colorado Department of Ag address the labor difficulties of small scale farming? both the increased cost of labor and its availability, and how do we make sure farm workers are supported well and treated fairly while recognizing the cost and the strain on farmers?
1: Absolutely. Um, Well, labor, as you mentioned, many different aspects of labor, of course, is one of the top issues that we hear from producers across the state and across the country that they're dealing with right now. And I'll talk about it from a few different angles. For one, in Colorado, we have a new regulatory landscape around labor, new labor laws, new rights for workers that are starting to come into effect after a bill that was passed a couple of years ago in the state legislature. That is a monumental change for how agriculture is used to operating over the last century. And so we're in that change right now, which means that with all change, folks are trying to figure out what does this mean for my business? What does that mean for me as a worker? What does it mean for my rights, my responsibilities? And at Colorado Department of Ag, we recognize the challenges that this poses, and we also accept that this is where we're at. So how do we move forward in a way that helps advance agriculture as a whole? So one example of what we've done to do that with some of the legislation in the last few years, CDA, Colorado Department of Ag actually got some resources and responsibilities, of course, to help implement these new labor laws. We are not the regulatory agency. That's Department of Labor and Employment. But that means that we have opportunities to think about how do we use education, outreach, incentives, relationships to help advance this work. So we actually took some resources that were, I think, really focused on some things like creating a a wage calculator for overtime online, which we've done. But we knew the, the work couldn't stop there. The work is really rooted in relationships and in trust and in showing up and helping people just work through what this means for them. So in that time, we actually started an ag worker outreach program. It's actually an outreach program for ag workers and employers. So we have a staff member named Aldo Parra, who is bilingual. He's in the field all the time, and he's hosting community events all over the state. Again, for employers and ag workers to say, hey, Here's the new labor landscape when it comes to regulations. Here are your rights, here are your responsibilities. But also we know that labor is short in agriculture. And are there new ways that we can be thinking about how to draw people in to ag, which actually goes to our other strategic initiative around supporting the next generation? We, in addition to that program, we now have a budget request, one of 11 items in front of the legislature for this next session that would expand that program and actually put more people to other people around the state to be in communities. And this is really a model we're trying to build across the board. It's what we're doing with community food access. We wanna do it with, with our labor program, having people from communities we serve, living in their communities, representing CDA, but also representing their communities back to us. And we feel like rooting this work, especially around labor and relationships, as well as policy, of course, but really at this point in time, focusing on relationships is the bread and butter of how we move forward on labor.
0: How do you create programs in addition to the ones that you mentioned and funding that assists small-scale farmers directly rather than the second tier in the food system, the wholesalers' value-added processors and other markets, like expanding markets for small-scale farmers is great, but expanding markets doesn't cover many of the basic funding and infrastructure needs of farmers, many of whom who don't have access to capital for improvements and have reluctance to take on debt, even if they do. For sure. So, I mean, I think the question of
1: how do you fund farmers directly has to start with what funding source are you working with? And have we had the opportunity to influence that funding source? The other element is that we are doing the best we can to take a holistic approach. We're not only looking to resource farms. We're not only looking to resource processors or buyers. We're looking to resource the system so that we can build resilience, diversity, and opportunity across the food system. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But when it comes to creating the programs, an example of something we don't have a lot of control over is federal funding, for example. So the bipartisan infrastructure law was passed through Congress. We as Colorado are taking in as much of that money as we can and trying to get it out to the field, by which I mean a lot of that money can go to ditch upgrades, headgate upgrades, like agricultural infrastructure. But Congress wrote the terms of that program and incredible feat that the Biden administration was able to get both bipartisan infrastructure and IRA dollars through Congress. Those monies are critical for rural Colorado and rural America. So the fact that we didn't have that much influence is not a big deal in this regards because it's benefiting ag. But where we do have influence as a state and as an agency, and of course, anybody in the state who's interested in policy is in our own legislature in our state house. So what Colorado department of ag does, you know, we actually put forward legislative items and budget items every year. And then we advocate with the general assembly on those items. We also react to things that come up in the legislature that might impact CDA or might impact ag. And so when it comes to, for example, the community food access program I mentioned, um, which does have funding for both retailers and farmers That was a conversation we had with the legislature as we were building that legislation. Hey, is there a way we can make this available for more than one category? Could eligibility be for both the farm and the retailer to expand business? That's one way of looking at it. I would say another great example our team has built in the last few years is our Star Soil Health Program, um, which has hundreds of participants across the state. It's been built by farmers and ranchers. We've been following their lead. And that is all for farmers. I mean, that is, you know, we are working with conservation districts, with eligible entities, everybody from, you know, Colorado Corn to Bird Conservancy of the Rockies, to Cattlemen's, to Farmers, everybody in between. That program provides grants, provides research, technical assistance, peer-to-peer networking. And we're going to really be accelerating that growth over the next few years. And that's all directly to farmers. And that was a, a important. Again, we built that program administratively before we even went to the legislature. So we could say, hey, we want to make sure we're getting as much of the resources on the ground to the farmers and ranchers as we can. Now, I want to add, as I mentioned, we're thinking holistically about this because we've also been putting a lot of resources into processing to help local and regional food systems actually have a place to process for value added to get more premium on the dollar for the producer We're also investing in that because of again, diversification and resilience. We saw where our vulnerabilities were during the pandemic and we wanna make sure we're diversifying in that realm. And then lastly on that front, just as an example, we're also um, about to be hiring for two climate marketing specialists. So those specialists are gonna be working both with the ag community, our star farmers, it will be the primary hub for them. And the buyer universe, both domestic buyers, local buyers, and international buyers, to say, hey, Colorado is on the leading edge of how we do climate forward ag work. Like we're taking climate seriously as seriously as we can. We're doing everything we can to be on our toes and advance it. And we wanna do it in a way that protects the agricultural economy. So, how do you blend that climate conservation and agricultural production? we do need marketplaces that that recognize and value that stewardship and that commitment to climate. So that's another way. You know, again, we want those dollars through grants to go directly to farmers. But CDA can only do so much and should only do so much. In my opinion, the market needs to show up and say, we value what Colorado farmers and ranchers are doing. And we're going to help support your bottom line to hit those conservation and climate targets.
0: Yeah, I love that you mentioned the buyers and the market, because I feel like there's this huge piece of education that comes with that part. Like, I'll talk to winemakers and I'll say, well, what do you want your consumer to know? And so I think connecting that is such a key part of the future and moving forward. And so I love that that's part of what the CDA is working on. Do you know of any updates on the current farm bill and how that may affect programs like SNAP? And Double Up Bucks, because I know that's a huge benefit to some of our local farmers here. I'll speak to the North Fork Valley area, for example, Mark Waltemeyer of Thistle Whistle Farm. He's able to get the money that he needs to support his farm operation, pay his employees by utilizing Double Up Bucks at local farmers markets. Do you have any update on that? And I know the farm bill is very vast, but specifically talking about the SNAP program.
1: Yeah. So, you know, writ large, the farm bill has been extended for one year. Unfortunately, the farm bill renewal timeline converged with Congress figuring out if they wanted to fund the government or not. And luckily we have, at least for a little while longer, funded the government. But in that process, Congress decided, hey, instead of negotiating a a new farm bill right now, let's just get a year extension and then work through negotiating the next farm bill within that year. What I hear from D.C. is that I think the first, you know, at the turn of the year, sort of the first quarter of 2024, there's going to be a lot moving, hopefully, on farm bill policy in Congress. And of course, about 80 percent of the farm bill is the nutrition program. So that inherently involves SNAP every cycle because it's a five year farm bill cycle. Um, The nutrition title is absolutely up for lots of debate and deliberation. So I don't think this year will be any different in that regards, but I do see a lot of strength in kind of our position as an agricultural community around supporting the nutrition title. And I think a lot of that comes from a, you know, keeping nutrition and ag policy together is how we get a farm bill passed. Because it brings, you know, left and right, it brings urban and rural together under this one omnibus bill to say, hey, we all actually have a stake in getting this done, so let's get it done. And I see here a lot of that same discussion these days. I do think the fact that SNAP and other nutrition programs are a revenue source for farmers is often an underutilized message that is true across the board, especially for a lot of small scale, direct to consumer farmers and ranchers who really rely on those customers who rely on the nutrition program. So I think looking at it as yes, it's a program that's helping people and families get the food and nutrition they need. And it's critical for so many of our small market farmers to actually do business and it's a revenue stream for them. So I think that's certainly our, you know, stance and my stance here at CDA and But keeping a close eye on what Congress is debating in the months ahead is going to be where the decisions are made. So I mentioned we have built a community food access program again. That's the grant program for small retailers and small farmers. We just closed the first grant application period for two and a half million dollars. So we'll be working through those applications and announcing grantees soon. But we will, come the spring, late winter, early spring, be announcing another round of grants. So that's something to keep a lookout for. And then the other item related to that is that we are also creating a tax credit program for the Community Food Access Program that will live out longer than the grant cycle. So, very similar model, same eligibility, but different mechanism of incentive to again help communities and families that need that access to safe, healthy food and be able to get it. Is that going to be
0: posted on CDA's website? Yep. Okay. That will
1: all be on ag.colorado.gov. It's on our homepage, our press releases. You just scroll down. You can find all our press releases, which have links to all of our open grants and other opportunities.
0: Perfect. And I'll put a hyperlink when I post this so that it's super easy for folks to go click on. What agricultural regions of the state do you see as most threatened by increasing local warming? For example, much of the Western Slope has already warmed over 2.1 degrees Celsius or 4 degrees Fahrenheit. Global scientific consensus tells us that this is a point of no return what is being done to address these microclimates throughout the state of Colorado?
1: Yeah, great question. For one, all of Colorado will be and is being impacted by climate change and the changing climate. And one way we're actually working to understand kind of the microclimate impact geographically, region by region across the state, is through the Governor's Office of Climate Preparedness and Disaster Recovery. And that office, which is created in 2022 in statute, is working with all the agencies that have something to do with climate, which is all of us. But of course, ag, natural working lands, you know, is critical to not just climate resilience, but our unique ability to combat climate change. The Governor's Office of Climate Preparedness is looking at, is actually looking at out-year modeling over the next many years to say, what conditions are we expecting in Yuma, in the North Fork Valley, in Southeast Colorado, and how might that, working backwards, impact you know various industries or economies in that area. So for example, certainly hotter, drier across the state overall. You know, we expect more and more intense extreme weather events like we've seen in recent years, which for our West Slope mountain communities, of course, is wildfire. We get grass fires on the plains, but our big, you know, headwaters, wildfires are certainly something we are concerned about and doing a lot around. Water supply is certainly, and water quality are absolutely elements we're tracking and doing our best to plan and mitigate for. So I think that's kind of broad brush strokes where we're at. We're actually, right now, we just launched the climate preparedness roadmap for the state. That'll be an iterative process, um, but that's going to, again, help us get really as nuanced as we can. And then, you know, I think the other element, a couple years ago at CDA, we created the Agricultural Drought and Climate Office, ADCRO, we call it. And that's really sort of our policy hub and program hub at CDA now to be able to say, hey, as agriculture, how do we want to lead on climate? We don't want to be on our heels. We want to be on our toes. And I should say that the rate of change in that here as an agency has been immense. We did not have a single statute with the word climate in it prior to three years ago. So we've gone from, I think, folks not really considering ag as part of the climate solution to now we have a whole office, we have staff. We just today announced half a million dollars in agrivoltaic research grants, so we're really pushing that forward. How do we do renewable energy production and hit that 100% renewable target we need to hit as a state, but do it in a way that doesn't pit renewables against agricultural production? So we're going to be seeing tons of research coming out of that. We just hired our first ever ag water advisor, Farmer Robert Cicada, um, from Brighton a long time, amazing farm family. And Robert's really going to help us work with the entire ag community on, you know, how do we adapt to a future with less water, but do it in a way that allows for opportunity and, you know, supports a vibrant ag economy and continues to create opportunity for people in agriculture, even in a drier future. So those are some of the ways we're looking to resource this, as well as, again, another one of our 11 budget requests for the legislature this year is almost a million dollars in ongoing funding for ADCRO, for that Drought and Climate Resilience Office, to get resilience dollars out the door. Renewable energy, water resilience, drought-tolerant crop transition, crop switching, uh, new practices, helping with soil health and the STAR program, whatever it might be that's the greatest need. We are looking to resource in a way that, again, won't solve the whole problem, but will help us reach that tipping point of you know, we're really integrating this resilience framework into the system as a whole. That's where we want to get as well as being part of the climate solution.
0: Yeah. And just one last question. I believe it's like a 2030 goal that Governor Polis has put into effect or is aiming towards for a certain percentage of more renewable energy. Can you speak to that a little bit and how that ties into agriculture?
1: Absolutely. So Governor Polis has been very bold and ambitious around establishing and then hitting our climate targets around renewable energy production as a state. So we are aiming for 100% renewable energy in the coming decades. We are well on track with the benchmarks we have at the time points between now and 2050. And some of that you'll see, you know, for example, coal country, retiring coal plants, and of course, North Fork Valley is one of those um, locations. So while we're thinking about the energy future, we're also not losing sight of those communities and families that have relied on coal production, as an example, to support their families. So the state also houses the Office of Just Transition to help think about as we move into new economies, how do we not leave people behind, especially people in rural Colorado, which is, I think, the biggest risk there. The other element and why I love agrivoltaics and I'm so excited to see what comes out of this research is it doesn't pit one land use against another. It says, hey, we've got this acreage here, but we've actually got acreage like sort of in a vertical sense, right? If we could raise up our solar panels, we could actually farm underneath and people are doing this around the state. So they're generating electricity for the grid, potentially. They are generating electricity for their business, so reducing their monthly utility bill and they're continuing to earn revenue off of the farmed land on the ground. That mindset of rather than is it this or is it that, what about can it be this and that? And I think one really great example is actually not with solar, it's with a microhydro. We've been working with the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe Farm and Ranch Enterprise for the last couple of years on installing microhydro turbines in their irrigation system. They have a unique system. They've got about 40 miles of uh, irrigation lines, pipelines from McPhee Reservoir down to the farm and ranch, which means they have gravity pressure. And they used to have to use energy to dispel that pressure before it went into their irrigation system. With the technology we've been helping them install, they're now capturing that pressure, turning it into energy, and then helping supply that energy to the farm and ranch and to the bow and arrow mill for their non-GMO cornmeal. So, That's an example of saying, hey, how do we use the infrastructure we have? But inverse our thinking about how energy and agriculture production can go hand in hand.
0: That was Colorado's Commissioner of Agriculture, Kate Greenberg. You've been listening to Crisis to Come Back, your Western Colorado climate action podcast, produced and hosted by me, Corey Stanton. Crisis to Come Back is a local and regional weekly short-form podcast that explores the impacts of climate change and the state of warming in Delta County and Western Colorado, and local climate actions taken by individual citizens, businesses, and government. Get informed, inspired, and empowered by listening to these short episodes, and become a part of the solution to addressing our rapidly changing local climate. This podcast was made possible in part by the West Elk Community Fund and Citizens for a Healthy Community. If you have questions, comments, or want to learn more about this podcast, please reach out to us by emailing crisis to comeback at chc4you.org. Thank you for listening.